we don't do politics in the partisan sense, in the campaign sense, in the manifesto sense. But I think it would be delusional if we said that nothing we do is political. Just by the simple fact that a lot of what we do as curators is about choice. Hey TEDxers, welcome back to Solving for X. Today we're talking to Bruno Giussani. He's TED's global curator. He's been with TED for 15 years and he's helped curate some of our biggest conferences around the world, TED Global, as well as TED Summit. We talk a lot about curation. We talk about curating global topics and making them feel locally relevant. We talk about how to take local ideas and have them resonate with a global audience, as well as touching on political subjects and how to best put them on stage. It's a fascinating conversation. I think you'd love to hear what Bruno had to say. Please join us and let's dive right in. Bruno, welcome to Solving for X. Hey, Jay. Let's start with a very basic question. You know, for most people around the world, if you're outside of TED, you don't really understand necessarily what a curator is. Um, so maybe my first question would be, what is curation? Well, at TED, we kind of have a tradition of that because Chris has been calling himself TED Curator ever since he took over uh, TED in 2001 or two. Uh, but historically, a curator is a role that's um, affiliated with a museum or a gallery and with art, and it is the person that uh, is generally an art historian or an art critic, and uh, the role of that person is at the same time to uh, maintain and keep and expand the collections and then generate exhibits, etc., etc. So, mm. uh, but over the last maybe 10 years or so, uh, we have seen the growth of the usage of the word curation for pretty much everything. Uh, cheese curators in, re- in, 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 in restaurants and book curators in bookstores. And, uh, and, and it has become a sort of synonym for making a choice, essentially just making a choice or filtering, right? And that's part of what curation is. But, but there is another element which is really important for what we do here at TED. And it is about uh, using the capacity to analyze and research uh, and look 360 degrees at ideas to try to connect ideas and things that maybe are not obviously connected. Mm. So there is the choice part, but there is also the connection part. How mm. do you connect and create intersections among and between thoughts and ideas? And what, uh, what at the beginning, shaped your view of what it means to be a curator? How did you get started with thinking about doing but, curation? You know, I, I arrived at TED in early 2005. I was kind of mimicking a little bit Chris's role at the beginning. I came from journalism. I had a different background than the work I'm, I'm doing now. And, uh, and so I kind of uh, you know, mapped my activity over his. And, uh, and so I've started putting together several lines of thoughts about how do you do it and what it is and how do you make it really relevant, etc. And, and it reminded me of an old story that uh, I picked up uh, probably 15 years before joining TED, because I remember being a young journalist and going to visit a Swiss art curator, Harald Zeman, uh, who is dead now, he died in 2005. Uh, but at the time, he was possibly one of the most important art curators in the world. And one of his specificities was that uh, he is the first one who broke through the notion that an art curator was attached to a museum or to a gallery, and he became a sort of freelancer. 
that would go to different museums and galleries and exhibitions and the Venice Biennale, etc., and curate for them as an external one mm. uh, who would bring fresh thinking and fresh ideas uh, to the museum or to the institution. But he also pushed a lot the definition of what curation is. It was the one who expanded the boundaries of curation by bringing in uh, really a lot of different things. There was a central concept, and around the central concept, he would organize any kind of art, but also, you know, literature and history and social commentary, etc., etc. So that was the way he worked. And I remember going and visiting him for an interview for a small newspaper I was working for at the time, and uh, I arrived in this small village in the Swiss Alps, and uh, he had bought a former watch factory, uh, two-story or three-story uh, uh, complex. And uh, the ground floor was what we would call a loft today. It was just this empty factory mm. space. And in the middle of it, there was this very, very, very long table, very wide, very long, and then all around, just bookshelves full of catalogs and, uh, and uh, exhibition brochures and correspondence of artists and clippings and magazines. And, and on the table, there were like five or six stacks, essentially, uh, of of stuff he was working on and he explained to me that every stack so a, a grouping of open books and open catalogs and notes and and, and and notebooks and letters and and pictures every single one was a project he was working on and he would physically move from project to project by just walking three meters down the table and mm. the other project was there open to continue to work on and i found that fascinating about how do you organize working in parallel on different projects that have different time horizons and the different dimensions, etc. And and if you think of the metaphor of physically moving from project to project, when you move away from one, that project remains there open on the table, ready to go back to, which is not what we do now. Now our project is on our laptop, so we close down everything to move on to the next tank, and then we need to go and open up everything. So we need to reorganize everything again every time we start over. Uh, I found that very, very uh, inspiring in terms of organizing the project work. And and I found the physicality of it incredibly powerful. And that's also still part of what I do, because a lot of my curation has to do with physicality. For example, once I have the list of speakers, what I do is that I work with post-its. I essentially write the name of the speaker and a couple of keywords and the length of the talk on a post-it and then I start putting post-its up on the wall or sometimes up on the window because they stick better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. <laughs> And then I move them around, and I leave them there for a day, and then I come back the next day. And little by little, this this physicality kind of combined with experience and, and intuition allows you to create the mapping of the conference. How do you map? Because there are two stages to the the world of the curator. One one is collecting the world of ideas, and then selecting from them, and then programming them right into a grid. Yeah. Uh, but looking just at the first part. What what inspired you about the German curators pre-computers desktop? How do you incorporate that into 2019, yeah. where I'm sure most of the stuff is done on laptops and yeah, research? Well, the first thing that, that I, I carried with me and I'm still uh, carrying with me is that you can find ideas everywhere. And uh, very often they are not in the headline of things, they're not in the title of the book, etc. They are somewhere else. Sometimes you read a long feature in a magazine and by page three you, you know, uh, find this quote by a researcher at some university in Canada and, and it makes you go, oh, there is something here, which is a very tiny 
portion of that article you're reading, but it seems to be a seed of a story that is worth exploring. And so you start researching that person and, and, and his or her idea. So that's just a way to say that uh, there isn't a single way to look for good ideas. You need really to scan very broadly and scan through all of the kind of materials you can access. How do you find good ideas that are not just what's going up to the Twitter trending? I mean, where do you dig? Well, the, the honest answer is that really I just follow my personal interest. Uh, you know, I, I, but that, the, but the, I, the, I mean, the, I know you and you cannot be interested in all the things. That, no, and, and, <laughs> no, and, 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 no, and nobody can and nobody can. But what I what I mean is I've done this job now for 15 years. So I have a mix of interest and experience and, uh, you know, learned intuition right. and all that kind of is an interplay that leads you to follow certain things and try to keep up with other things, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, so you can't be interested in everything, but definitely you can be interested in many, many different things. And that leads you to, you know, walk into the, the newsstand at the airport and pick up five magazines. And then, then I just pick up random stuff following my instinct of the moment. Now, what grabs you? So you read, you read, you read. I know you read about everything, but suddenly you go, <laughs> aha, this is interesting. I'm going to mark this. I'm going to tear this. I'm going to snap a picture of this. Yeah. What is it that grabs you, that makes you think this is TED-worthy? There are a couple of different things. Uh, uh, one definitely has to do with uh, freshness. This is new. And it doesn't even mean that it's definitely new in terms of this has never been said before, but it can be, this has never been said before in this way. The second one is definitely about relevance. Uh, this is something that if we develop uh, it as a talk, could really contribute to the conversation or to understanding, etc. The third thing is probably about uh, trying to direct a little bit the conversation by giving emphasis to things that are underemphasized elsewhere. Very often, what was this this famous example that we have used a few times, Chris and myself, in different talks we have given about the day Motorola presented the first mobile phone, which at the time was rather a portable phone because it was a suitcase size, right? Mm. But essentially, Motorola did this presentation, and at the same time, uh, at US Congress, they were discussing something about Nixon. And uh, if you look at the front page of the New York Times the day after, Two-thirds of the front page are occupied by Nixon and by topics that have become totally irrelevant. Mm. And uh, the presentation of the first mobile phone that came to transform the world was like on page 23 at the bottom of the page. Right? So where do you find those signals that you can try to elevate to the importance of the front page, although in the general conversation they're not on the front page? Mm. Interesting. So... Talk to us through the steps that you take as a curator to go from there into a TED conference. And maybe as an example, we'll use one that is current. Uh, you are curating for an upcoming conference, TED Summit. And so walk through the steps that you're following to do that. So the theme of TED Summit is uh, community beyond borders. And that can mean many different things. But uh, what I zeroed in is on the word community for different reasons. The first one is that Summit is a gathering of the TED community. Almost everyone who's there, aside from some new speakers, has been at TED or TED Global or TED Women or TED Active or TED Fest before, uh, or is a member of one of our communities, TEDx, TED, etc., etc. So it's really a family gathering in a way, although it's a big family. Uh, and we wanted really to play in that interaction. But then the second reason was we picked that topic partially, the theme, 
partially to uh, to represent that community, but also because we arrive at a moment in history where it looks like that uh, a lot of things that revolve around the notion of community are weakened, are breaking down, are in danger, uh, have become polluted in a way or another. Uh, think of the incapacity to have civilized discussions around political topics. Uh, think of, uh, you know, with families that fight and friends that fight, etc., etc. Uh, think of uh, the wall movement that led to the emergence of uh, uh, political populism in many different countries, which has to do with the breakdown of communities, people being feeling left behind, etc. Think about the consequences of uh, globalization, which has led to similar things, people that didn't feel that they had their part in this phenomenon, and others were profiting more than them, uh, or were profiting out of them, uh, etc. So there are a lot of things that have to do with community in in a very expansive way uh, that we wanted to explore. And actually, probably more than half of the talks somehow relate in a way or another to some aspect of this. Mm. Uh, we're going to have talks about uh, how do you recreate spaces for for healthy conversations between people that think differently politically or socially. We're going to have talks about uh, how do we regenerate a sense of community when community feels crushed between the power of the state and the power of the market. Uh, we're going to have uh, talks about uh, intergenerational tensions, etc., uh, etc. Et so uh, it's kind of let's find a way to put a concept in the middle and then a little bit like Harald Seman, the curator, did. Concept in the middle and then look at all the different aspects and pieces and subplots that we can find to explore that topic as much as we can. We don't have only those talks at that summit, but probably half of the program somehow can be connected. Bruno, let me ask you the next question. Uh, as a global curator, when you're putting a talk on stage, how do you make global topics seem relevant to people who, whose lives are very local, their realities are very local? Many of the topics that you put on stage next month, for example, you want people in different countries around the world to watch and feel like they can relate to that concept. Some topics, uh, if it's too global, it maybe feels too big. Uh, if it's too local, maybe it doesn't feel relevant. How do you, do you have any tricks that you can share? Well, the, the thing goes in both directions, right? You, you have a topic that's global and people may feel disconnected to it because it doesn't apply to their lives or, or so. Uh, and then you have a topic that's kind of local and also how do you universalize it to make it relevant mm -hmm. to everybody. Uh, and, uh, and somehow it's always a difficult balance to, to find. Uh, we have a big limitation to start, which is all our official events are in English. And so it starts from finding people who can tell a story in English. And sometimes people with important stories can't speak English. And so, you know, I call a TEDx organizer somewhere and say, hey, you should pick up these people, this person in your language because. Uh, but then a, a lot of talks are global by nature. And, and sometimes they can feel a little bit overwhelming in the sense that you were mentioning before. This topic is so big. How does it relate to me? What can I do personally? Uh, I feel such a small cog in a big machine. Mm -hmm. uh, it's overwhelming. And there, probably the trick is to try to find ways to insert specific examples into the talk that can be relatable for a person or for somebody in a different kind of 
context, uh, etc. And those can be the story of a person, can be a lesson learned, can be a specific example from a specific geography that can be well described, etc. And and although you you probably won't feel like you you know are walking in the steps of the speaker, somehow you can at least follow the journey a little bit, and mm. and, and that helps mm. for that. The other scenario where you have a, a, a local topic and you want to try to universalize, it's a little bit more complicated because there are parts of the world that are very present in our mind. Uh, if a story is located in New York, pretty much you know half of the world uh, who has ever seen a Hollywood movie can kind of find, relate, find yeah. relate to that. If a story is, is set in Boise, uh, Idaho, or in Manchester, then it's a different story. Uh, and in the case, the only thing you can do is to try to put yourself, uh, put yourself in a position of taking the audience by the hand and taking them step by step through that journey. Literally trying to make the physical contest come alive and describe things and not take anything for granted, right? If your story involves Istanbul and involves uh, Elif Shafak, you need to say that Istanbul is in Turkey and you need to say that Elif is the uh, you know, most widely read female novelist in Turkey today, uh, because that can give a little bit of context to the people listening mm. to understand what you're talking about. And if I say she's the mo- most widely read female novelist in Turkey, what does it mean? Well, the most widely read female novelist in my country is that person, so she's the equivalent of that person. That's a very rapid connection we do in our mind, and that helps create the context for the talk. So all these details actually matter. So Bruno, one of the things that we tell TEDx organizers around the world is try to stay away from talks and ideas that are uh, very much driven by a political agenda, by a religious agenda, or we also add to that a commercial agenda. And uh, for the most part, TEDxers are doing a really good job of that. Um, We tried to follow that a little bit also here at TED, uh, but I would say that you, Bruno, as a curator, probably take us closer to the edge and push the limits on these more than uh, some other curators. Uh, You have brought politicians, you bring really hot political topics, religious leaders. Um, How do you do that without kind of crossing the line of what is intrinsically TED, uh, without, you know, bringing up these ideas for conversation without them appearing to partisan or agenda-driven, etc., and without getting into trouble, really. We have been working with, uh, you know, the president of Sierra Leone this year, Pope Francis two years ago, a lot of social and political scientists in pretty much every conference we have done, uh, as well as a lot of activists, for example, uh, you know, against uh, deforestation in the Amazon or for women's rights or freedom of speech, etc., etc. You brought a European commission. We brought a European commissioner just before she implemented a new privacy regulation, for example, and, and all these things. The thing is, when you say Ted doesn't do politics, actually, it's not exactly uh, a description of of the reality, right? Uh, we need to understand what we mean by politics. We don't do politics in the partisan sense, in the campaign sense, in the manifesto sense. That's not something mm-hmm. we do. We are not a political movement. We don't want to be one. We are not a political party. We don't want to be one. We don't support or endorse candidates, never, etc., uh, etc. Et but I think it would be delusional if we said that nothing we do is political because somehow 
politics is kind of intrinsic in a lot of things we do. Just by the simple fact that a lot of what we do as curators is about choice. And it's about choosing topic A versus topic B. It's about uh, highlighting one story over another. It's about uh, uh, putting the accent on a specific angle. It's about saying, hey, we're putting three talks about climate change in the program because climate change matters. And we're not putting zero topics about topic X because we think it matters less. Uh, and, and those are all political choices, right? Uh, but they're not inscribed or derived from a sort of you know hidden political agenda we would have uh, they're still very much tied to the kind of things we want to do which is share relevant knowledge to whoever is interested in listening to it and that's really is more of an educational aim than a political aim in a sense but we need to be careful about not pretending that we don't do at some level that we don't make some political choices because all we do is choosing. We mm. choose mm. You know, who gets the 12 minutes on stage and who doesn't. And, and that's eminently political. No, that, that, to it. that is a really good distinction. Um, so when you make a choice to bring someone like the European commissioner who's going to speak about antitrust, mention companies like Google or Facebook, um, how do you then make sure that you show a balanced perspective, right? Because you've just chosen to give that person a stage. Uh, you're not bringing the other side. They've got the stage, they've got the voice. How do you make sure that they present a balanced view, an illuminating view, an informative view that feels cohesive? Uh, so the, the, it, it's always a very tricky balance. The example you brought up about the European commissioner, is it's interesting because, of course, what we wanted from her was to hear what is the analysis of somebody in that position who's about to implement a new continent-wide regulation that will become a sort of standard for regulation worldwide, right? Uh, and so it was a kind of a, a, a descriptive, analytic kind of talk. But let's take another example. Uh, this year, this past April 2019 in uh, Vancouver, we had a couple of very strong talks, particularly against Facebook including one of the opening talks in the first uh, session by Carol Cadwallader, who is the journalist who uh, revealed the whole Cambridge Analytica scandal. And she found this interesting framing about uh, how to relate that to specific offline events, particularly the impact that the social media had on the Brexit mm -hmm. campaign. And there, of course, you need the other voice. But then the other voice needs to agree to come to the stage and be as open as they can be. And indeed, uh, Chris Anderson walked on stage and said, well, you know, this is a talk. And if Facebook wants to answer, the stage is yours, just come to Vancouver or let us know or let's do a video conference. And, and, and we didn't hear back from them. Uh, compare that to when we had Edward Snowden on stage a few years back was the year when he had made his big revelation and then you know, the whole story happened and he found himself in Russia without a passport and we beamed him in via video conference and he gave his talk and we did exactly the same thing which is this is Edward Snowden's version attacking the NSA will the NSA national security agency in the US will the NSA answer if 
you're willing to answer, you're welcome. And the next day we had a deputy mm -hmm. uh, director of the NSA live on video answering, giving his own version of the story. Uh, so we do these kind of things. You need to be open to these kind of, of things. But it's not obvious that people are willing to participate in this kind of discussion either. And these are very delicate, time-sensitive. All the time. Uh, yeah, All the very, time. very delicate. Yeah. You've seen many TEDx events over the years. I don't know if there is a way for you to give kind of like biggest observations about most common things that new TEDx organizers should be thinking about, try to avoid or try to do. No, I realize it's very difficult for new TEDx organizers, particularly when they do small events, to put a lot of pressure on speakers. My suggestion is do fewer events or do them smaller. It's better to do a great event with seven speakers than a mediocre event with 14. Quality is certainly better than quantity in, in, all, this, in all these fields. And then preparation ahead of time is very, very important. Yeah. So, Bruno, one of the advantages that we have, uh, you both speak French and Italian. Do you speak German as well? I speak German as well, And you yeah. speak uh, German that you've been close to all of these communities. I know the TEDx communities in all these three places. And I think especially perhaps to the community in Italy. I know yeah. you've spent a lot of time with them. And um, other than that, I would say, Bruno, thank you for continue, thank your you. continued support, always coming Absolutely. to talk to us and to TEDxers about curation. Uh, we love having you. We love having you as a friend and supporter. Thank you. I love this community. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Solving for X. Join us on the TEDx Hub to find additional resources on this topic. You can also share your insights or ask questions. This episode was produced with love by Bianca de Jesus, recorded by Taylor Stemley and researched by Tvetina Deneva. This episode was edited by Sharina Ong. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to the Solving for X channel wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, or of course, on the TEDx Hub. Thank you for listening to Solving for X. See you next time.